And we're going to read from his word now from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 1 to 12. It says in uh, scripture, God disciplines his sons, but it's about running a race. And that's what we're going to look at. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that the word, you have forgotten that that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as though they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace, and for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. I'm looking around now thinking, who does that refer to? <laughs> strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees and make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Well, in the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, they advertise for applicants to make the first journey to another planet. Uh, over 18,000 people applied to go. Uh, and their application sheets were given to psychologists and psychiatrists to look at. And they concluded uh, they didn't really want to go there because they thought it was a better place. They just wanted to leave this world because they were so discouraged by it. Well, you know, I used to work at Lucas Aerospace in Burnley, and it, I was the only boy from Rosendale there as an apprentice engineer, and everybody else was some sort of Pendle, Burnley and Nelson and things like that, and they all thought we were farmers over here in Rosendale, because they'd never been out of Burnley, how's about that? Um, and they all thought we were farmers, they thought I lived on a farm, but you know, every one of them said, when I've got enough money, I'm going to leave this horrible country, they were less... Um, good to it than that, and I'm going to move abroad and start a new life. And I thought, well, why? What's up with this one? Uh, not much. But we can think like that, can't we? And 18,000 people wanted to leave planet Earth, not because they wanted a better place. They were sure that it was uh, horrible enough here. Discouragement affects us all from time to time, doesn't it? Gets us down. This world doesn't any longer uh, creep up and bite us, does it? It just bites us. It just gets us. And this world's a tough place, and that's why we need our Lord Jesus Christ to more and more in it, and more and more people in it need him. Discouragement's a killer. Many people even drop out of our churches these days because life gets the better of them. They turn their back on God, they blame God for things when it's not his fault. Many Christians stop serving him. 
And I think of people I've known all my Christian life, people like John Pryor down at K Street there, some folk here who are familiar faces going back a long time, who have served God faithfully and in a dedicated way all that time. And yet those people too will have had discouragements and setbacks, and yet they've kept the fire burning. John Calvin in the 1500s, uh, one of the great reformers of the Christian faith from Catholicism, This is what he said, and he was instrumental for changing the way we think in our modern churches. In addition to the immense troubles by which I am so sorely consumed, there is almost no day on which some new pain or anxiety does not come along. That's what he said. Spurgeon, again in the 1800s, again one of the great Baptist reformers of the time, uh, and still taken very seriously today in in many denominations, said this, uh, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Discouragement. It creeps over my heart and makes me go with heaviness to my work. It is dreadfully weakening. And I thought, well, if they can be like that and discouraged like that, then maybe our lot isn't that bad after all, we always think these people were uh, stalwarts and s- strong people in our Christian faith. And yet here they are being affected just like you and just like me. Well, that's how it is today, isn't it? Many of us may have come through those doors this morning thinking, Lord, how can I worship you when I'm burdened and weighed down by all these things in my life this morning? Well, maybe you're thinking about throwing in the towel yourself. Maybe you're thinking about dropping out You've given up on God. Maybe life's just a little bit too tough. Well, God didn't save us, did he? To live a life of discouragement. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 it says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God wants to deliver us, not just us, but all the folk who live in the streets and houses around here from the debilitating effects of this world that we live in. He does. Let's read Hebrews, just the first three verses of that chapter again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, let's have a look. Who's run to church this morning? Ian, have you come on your bike or have you run to church this morning or have you come in the car? Yeah, me too, yeah. I could have walked over the hill quite easily, couldn't I? But uh, why did it not cross my mind, I wonder? There's nobody else in running gear here this morning. Although I do see some folk from this church every now and again out running. And I do. I'm not going to tell you who they are. That's uh, a little bit embarrassing maybe for those folk. Well... If we're going to commit our life to faithfully running this race... We've got to prepare for it, haven't we? I don't know if any of you know Alan Wolfenden. He came to our church for some time, Alan. He was a great servant of the Lord at Goodshaw. Then he got called into the Baptist ministry. He was a plasterer. Uh, It's quite a few years now when Bill Ives was our minister. And Alan had turned up for church on a Sunday morning. And he'd say to myself, Bill Ives and John Pilling, some of you know John. He said to us three, I've entered us for the Tobberton 10K. What? I've entered us for the Todmorden 10K race. And we think, well, why, Alan? Why have you entered us for that? By the way, when is it? Next Sunday. (laughs) 
Right, okay, so we all got dressed up and we all, and I'm so stood there on the line thinking, who looks as unfit and as unhealthy as me that I could sort of walk around and chat to? And Alan's off like a shot, like a rocket. And I think on some of the races he sort of lapped us as we trotted around. But you know, he was prepared. He was ready. He went out running every night, Alan. I once went running with him and he thought maybe it'd be good fun if he wore a big heavy rucksack at the same time while we were running uh, and just watched me pant and sweat alongside him. But I wasn't prepared. I couldn't do it. I flopped around a little bit and we did quite a few races. The Good Shabaptist running team. Sorry, the Good Shabaptist not prepared at all running team. We did quite a lot of races. And every now and again he'd come along and say, I've entered us for the Hebden Bridge Half Marathon. And we said, why? Why, Alan, why have you done that? And we thought he was trying to finish us off somewhere. But he wasn't. He just thought he was doing us a favour. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, look, you're teaching with me in Sunday school next week because so-and-so's off, don't ask you. Or the holiday club's coming along on the 24th of August, we need your help. You might step in at the last moment, might you? But isn't it better to be prepared for these things? Um, let's go out shopping for a new minister. We'll go, we'll go on Saturday and we'll have one by Sunday. Can't do it like that. Not in a Baptist church where you've got to have members meetings, extraordinary members meetings, extra special extraordinary members meetings. And that's only to get a carpet. When it comes to getting a minister, you've got to get lots of other things, haven't you? But we've got to be prepared in our churches, and we are. And the process of getting a minister like you folk here have been through, and up at Goodshaw we're looking at, in maybe in the next uh, year or 18 months, we have to prepare. What's my heart like? Never mind what the man or the woman that's coming is like. What's my heart like? Am I going to be fit to receive them and live under their ministry? Am I going to accept their ministry? Hmm. Am I going to be prepared? For God bringing that person here. Well, we've got to be prepared. There's no marathon on the day. And for a spiritual race too, we've got to be prepared. We keep fit. I'm going to have to contend with the singers upstairs now, but that's alright. We've got to keep fit by reading the word of God. And like King David said, Lord, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We've got to read it. We've got to digest it. We've got to commit it to our life. Not just to our memory so we can spit it out every now and again. But this has got to be how we live. Not live our life and then find a passage of scripture to suit what we've just done. But to read the word of God and abide by it is very difficult, isn't it? Because in the word of God he says you're doing something that's wrong, stop it. Or you're not doing something you should be, do it. And that's what the word of God says to us, do it or stop it. It says in verse 1 we need to be free from the weights that encumber us. Now it's quite funny really, because sports men and women, they get up early in the morning, don't they, with or without lottery funding, and they start preparing really early. Some of them have a sports psychologist. I don't know how that works, really. Run faster. <laughs> Run faster. You can do it. You're not really out of breath. Your legs don't really feel like jelly, but they do. No, they don't. Keep going. What's a sports psychologist do? Free yourselves from those people who might give you bad advice about your life and your Christian faith. Trust the Lord. Trust the word of God through his spirit. Be free from the weights that encumber. Throw your clothes off so you can run faster. That's what the ancient Greeks thought, isn't it? Do you know why are ancient Greeks part of the primary school curriculum? You know you're going to have to look at vases from those times with naked runners on. And that's your lesson over and done with, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it's the truth of it. 
That's what happened. The ancient Greeks in their early Olympics ran with nothing on, we're told. Because they knew, unlike our sports clothing of today, uh, to be sort of more common sense, um, unlike sports clothing of today that stretches and, and is, is very well designed out of technical materials, they couldn't run in the fabrics at the time, so they did away with them. And that's what Paul's relating to here, or the writer to the Hebrews at least. Uh, uh, some say Paul, some say otherwise. Um, but perhaps... He was talking to people like our Lord Jesus about the things they knew about. When he said this, they'd all know exactly what he meant. Yeah, I was down at the arena last week. I saw him running. They got rid of the clothes and all those things that stopped them taking part effectively. Well, he's not telling us to come to church in our birthday suits today, is he? That would be an exciting uh, page of reading in the Rosendale Free Press, I dare say. Um, But he's not. He's telling us to get rid of the things that encumber us. And he says, and entangle us. Same for Christians. Our attention, our focus, should be on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Freedom from your sins that entangle. Well, it's a big shock to some, isn't it? Uh, When we give our heart to the Lord and we say, whether we repeat a prayer of commitment after somebody, or we get down on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I know you've saved me and died on the cross for me. Come into my life and set me free. And then it's a great big shock that those lustful thoughts still grow in our minds, men and women. That we still say things that upset people. We still do things as children of of light that we think we shouldn't do. Get rid of them, Paul says. Get rid of them. Our old anger flares out of control again. But I gave my life to Jesus a week ago. Why am I still doing that? Scripture tells us those problems are a problem for individuals. To remove ourself from their presence. There might be some of us here in this room this morning that frequent places we shouldn't do as Christians. We're involved in lifestyles that we shouldn't be as Christians. And they're the things that Paul's on about. Get rid of them. Chuck them away. Throw them off. Release yourself from being weighed down. Ricky Hatton. I keep watching Ricky Hatton, but he keeps getting beat these days, doesn't he? Uh, Quite early on as well. But he's one of those people, and in a spiritual sense, it's like a Christian, who shapes up for the fight, the holiday club, the Sunday school, or whatever it might be, our camp at Goodshaw, or a Sunday morning service. And yet, throughout the rest of the week, like him, in between fights, apparently, his weight ballooned two or three stone. And he never controlled it. And he just tried to get ready for every time he needed to be in shape, rather than be ready all the time. And our Bible says, be ready. No man knows the day or the hour when our Lord will return. Be ready. Be on your guard. He will come like a thief in the night, it says. You won't have time to get ready. Jesus is coming back next week. Somebody will say, won't be like that. And really, it's not to frighten us into that glory land, is it? It's so that we can be children of God, children of Christ, and we can love and live our life for him, rather than thinking, I have a week or two to get ready. Where's my Bible? It's better. Uh, when he comes, he'll think I've been reading that, and uh, I'll, I'll say a few more prayers and things like that. Do you know, there's no greater thrill than every day to live with Jesus, our Lord. No greater thrill than that. Whether we're at school, whether we're here today, uh, whether we're doing the holiday club, whether we're on holiday as a family, there's no greater thrill than to be with him all the time, not just every now and again. 
An old mechanic once said, I don't know if these stories are true, but they sound good, don't they? An old mechanic once said that he was saved. And the vicar said to him, well, you know, you've got a bit of an history, Billy. He said, well, I have, you know, all that drinking and all that womanising and all these things. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Every time I think sinful thoughts or I fall into sin, I'll sing a hymn to stop myself from doing it. And then after a few years, the vicar met him again. He said, how are you going on with that hymn singing? He said, you know, I've sung every hymn I know and I've made three of my own up as well. I just can't stop it. But we can't stop it, can we? Some of us will go straight out of these doors this morning and maybe say something or think something or do something that a child of God in Christ should never do, say or think. Will he condemn us for it? No, he won't. He'll forgive us, like he always does. He'll pick us up, dust us off, and send us off again to carry on his work. And that sin will be remembered no more. Hallelujah. Because of God's graciousness to us. We don't deserve that, do we? And yet that's how he treats us. Throw it off, Paul says. Run with patience the race which is set before us. The race in Greek, it tells me at least, means a struggle or a contest. Now I'm sure that everybody sitting here today will be able to think of some part of their life that's been a struggle, or is a struggle, or might become a struggle. Well, Jesus said, my road is smooth and the way is easy. But sometimes it feels so difficult, doesn't it? Right, come on, let's be honest now. Who's ever had that dream when you're running away from somebody, but you're running like the clappers, but you're not moving? Who's ever had that dream? Yeah, it's like that dream where you fall off a, a house roof or something, isn't it? And you wake up as soon as you hit the floor. Thank goodness. But you know, life's sometimes like that dream, isn't it? You're running away. You're running that race. Lord, I'm going as fast as I can, but I'm not getting anywhere. Christianity's like that sometimes, isn't it? Can be. We seem to be doing our best. Living our life for Jesus. Running the race. But we're not getting anywhere. Well... Patience links to endurance, says in scripture. The long haul is what God's after. He's not so much interested in sprinters, you know, our Lord. He's the greatest trainer there's ever been. He's not so much interested in the Christian spiritual hundred meters. There I am. One week wonders, singing, all dancing, all singing, all nothing. He's interested in a marathon runner, isn't he? And he wants you and me to commit all our life to him, not just that 10.2 seconds or whatever it might be. It's about 9.87, isn't it now? But he wants us to commit our whole life to him. Every thought, every word, every deed, every step on that race for him, our saviour. He's done that for us, and that's what he wants from us. To prevent us from becoming discouraged as we run, he wants us to focus on his person. There's no other way, is there? Lum Baptist is great, isn't it? I'll say that again. Lum Baptist's great, isn't it? So it's good to Baptist church. But it's not the be all and end all, is it? Only our Saviour Jesus is. I was preaching at the old chapel sermons last week and I said to the folk there who come once a year, and a lot do, wouldn't it be a sad state of affairs if this building was here in 300 years time but there were no people associated with it? And they wandered around it saying, oh isn't this building lovely? What did the people do that came here? Why was it built? Who was it for? 
God's people have got to outlive the buildings and God's people have got to outlive the trappings of our faith. You know, and if we sat here under a tent this morning, as we might be doing in a week's time, some of us, we can still praise his name and thank him for what he does for us. But Lum Baptist is great. But if we don't focus on the person of Jesus, we've missed the point, haven't we? We've missed it. Well, we started with a look. It's like that old joke, isn't it? It was love at first sight for me and Judith. And then she had another look. <laughs> well, and here we are still together. She's lovely. And it started with a look. In Isaiah verse chapter 45, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all of you. I am God and there is no other. There is no other. Turn to me, all of you. I am God and there is no other. There is no other, apart from our Saviour Jesus. The race that's set before us in Hebrews uh, tells us that I can't run your race, you know. There'll be some fantastic people in this congregation, some brilliant people in this congregation. But I can't be you and you can't be me. I can't run your race and you can't run mine. But Jesus can help me run mine and Jesus can help me run yours. And I can help you run your race and you can help me run mine. But you can't run it for me and I can't run yours for you. We've got to focus on him, the person of Jesus, our saviour, and ask him to be our trainer. The best trainer there's ever been. Well, he's the author and finisher of our faith. The author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews tells us. He gives out the medals, he gives out the rewards. He disqualifies the runners as well if he thinks it's necessary. He starts the race and he finishes the race. He's the only one to watch as the race goes on. But we look at other people we're racing against, don't we? And we go home sometimes and we moan and we mumble about each other in church. Not too harshly. Why are we thinking about other runners when we should be thinking about him? Why are we taking any notice of how they're running when we should be thinking about how he wants me to run? It's my race. We shouldn't be. Get your eyes off the others and how well they're doing. Because you'll always find that they're not running how you want them to run. They might be elbowing you a bit on that bend. They might be trying to step in your lane and get in front. But he's not interested in you looking at them. He's interested in you looking at him. Because he's perfect. He's fantastic. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is our Saviour Jesus. Get your eyes on him. He wants us to focus on his performance, not just his person. Because he has already finished and won the race that me and you were still running. Hasn't it? When we get, it's funny, isn't it, that? How can you run a race with somebody at your side? And when you get to the end, he's already there. Well, I'm sure he was running alongside me a minute ago. He does, doesn't he? He's with us every step of the way. The footprints in the sand tells us that, doesn't it? And when we get to the finishing line, he's there waiting for us. Come on, Lord, you can't be that good, can you? Yes, I can. And yes, I am, he says. He finished it. He's run the race. And let's take courage in, in the fact, the real fact that the Jesus, me and you, says our Saviour, our Lord and Saviour, has won it. He's run that race ahead of us. He's completed it. Can your boss do your job? How many times do we say that? He can't do my job. He couldn't do my job if he tried. How, what right has he got to tell me how to do that? Do politicians honestly know how we feel? No. 
But that's what they think. Uh, and our boss always thinks he or she can do our job. But Jesus can. He can do our job. He knows how we feel. He knows everything about us. He does because he's run our race for us. He hasn't run alongside us really, has he? He's run it. He's put his footsteps in your footsteps. He's suffered the things that you suffer. He's felt the way that you feel sometimes. He's done it. He's been there. He's got the t-shirt, we would say today. Well, we've got it. He helps us along the way. Let's just look at these things that he endured for us. Because this is what that last verse in scripture is about. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. When God is our saviour, through our saviour Jesus Christ, our race becomes so much easier. But we've got to have him as our trainer uh, and nobody else. We've got to let him run alongside us and in our footsteps and be at the finish when we get there. He successfully navigated the course that we're running. Look what he endured. He was born to an unwed mother, Matthew 1. He was born in a stable, Luke 2. He was born to poor parents in Luke 2. His life was threatened as a baby, even to death, Matthew 2. His birth was the cause of terrible suffering for others in Matthew 2. He was moved as a baby in Matthew 2. His family moved house. He was raised in a despicable town, it says in Luke chapter 2. His father died when he was young, Matthew 13. He had to support his family, Matthew 13. He had no home and no place to lay his head, Matthew 8 uh, and Luke 9. He was here and opposed by others in Mark 14 he was charged with insanity in Mark chapter 3 he was charged with being demon possessed in Mark chapter 3 he he was opposed by his own family in Mark chapter 3 he was rejected, hated and opposed by the audiences who came to hear him speak Matthew 13, Luke 4 he was betrayed by a close friend in Mark 14 Uh, he was left alone, rejected and forsaken by all of his friends, all of them in Mark 14 he was tried in a high court in the high court of the land and tried with treason John 18 he was executed as a common criminal and by means of crucifixion he was put to death for you and for me and he conquered death and he rose again hallelujah you know when we get down to that bottomless pit it seems of life and we're struggling a little bit who do we find there? Jesus when we're at our wits end with our job or in our family life or with our relationships or just life in general and we're there in that dark place who do we find there? Jesus what does he say? don't worry I've been here before and I know how to get out praise God that he is our saviour he is our co-runner Don't let discouragement get you down at all when we're running that race. Come to him. Refocus your priorities on the person and the performance of Jesus, our Saviour. There's help in him. He's been through everything we could even dream of and imagine. He's the perfect coach. So instead of looking elsewhere for help, let's keep our eyes fixed on him. That old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, uh, wasn't written for no reason. It was inspired, I think. Find your help in him and him alone. Amen.